Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Having established that God, not herself, is her only reference, Mary moves to the next logical step from Scripture's perspective, the proclamation of the fear of God, the terrible might of God that the mere mention of his name strikes fear and brings the hope of mercy, mercy to those once enslaved and humiliated like Mary. In our fake philosophical systems of human mercy and institutional compassion, we pretend that mercy and fear are alien to each other. That's because wealthy, comfortable Westerners cannot understand the perspective of a humiliated Roman slave, rescued by a god mightier and much more to be feared than her Roman taskmasters. Given the state of things in 2022, maybe we should heed Mary's warning. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 49 to 50. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 443 of the Bible as Literature podcast. I don't know why people have difficulty with fear. When I look at the violence plaguing our communities, when I look at the abuse that the children in our schools suffer every day, kids that are 13, 14, and 15 years old that walk into school and tip over desks and throw coffee machines and cuss out their teachers and destroy property and abuse each other and disrespect adults and then go outside the school and (laughs) steal cars and smash them into walls and pick up handguns that we sell to them at a profit without regulation and end up hurting themselves and each other. All these terrible things that happen because someone decided that fear was a bad thing. This terrible, terrible philosophical notion of ontology, fear is bad, comfort is good, safety is good, psychological safety. Yes, of course, psychological safety has a very positive functional value in many situations. And fear 
has a very negative functional value in many situations, but nothing is ontologically good or bad. Everything has a functional value in a context. And when someone steals a car and there's a hit and run because a bunch of kids are out joyriding and a 70-year-old woman ends up dead, true story, and no one can be held to account because fear is bad and judgment is bad in our philosophical framework in 2022, we have a serious problem. Which is why I keep company not (laughs) with contemporary thinkers, but with Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos, and all the rest. Because sometimes fear is not only necessary, sometimes it's beautiful. And we need fear from generation to generation. And it's nice to hear about it in the Magnificat, Richard. Fear is such a central piece of what Scripture says. I mean, I read the Psalms every morning, and you know, one of my favorite lines is in Psalm 5-7, But as for me, I will come into thy house in the multitude of thy mercy, and in thy fear will I worship toward thy holy temple. And I just love that line because I come into the house because of your mercy. You allow me to come in. But in fear, I worship because I was only allowed in by mercy. I wasn't given a membership card that now entitles me to entrance into the temple whenever I want. It's not how it works. Every time I come in, it's mercy. So I worship in fear, knowing that you can kick me out. Now, people would say, Dad, do you really want to live with that dark cloud over your head? And then it's going to be fear and it's going to sap all your energy and you're going to feel sad. And right, that's how people think. But as soon as I forget that it's out of mercy, that I was invited into this house that is not mine, then I start treating it like it's mine. And what happens when I treat it like it's mine? I start handing out membership cards of who I think should be able to come in and who I think is entitled to be a member of this club. I have to, every time, enter into this temple, remember that it's in mercy, so that when I worship there, it's in fear. Fear and mercy go together. Mercy only comes from a judge. And you fear the judge because your whole life is on the line. I know people who've been on parole, and they know that if they mess up, they go back to jail. That's fear. And when they mess up and they have to tell their parole officer, and their parole officer says, well, since this isn't something you're always doing, I'm not going to report it to the judge. You're fine. Just don't do it again. That's mercy. But now are they going to say, "Ah, I'm not afraid of my parole officer anymore? God forbid. Because the second time the parole officer might say, yeah, now it's twice. You're going back to jail. So as soon as the person on parole forgets that it's out of mercy that he's not in jail, that's when he's in trouble. That's why every parolee kind of hates his parole officer because he knows how much power he holds over him. 
But the parole officer is different than the Lord because the parole officer is bound by the law of the state. The Lord is not bound by any law. His mercy, therefore, is limitless. But our fear of the Lord must be proportional to that because anything that happens comes from his hand. So fear and mercy must come together. If I no longer have fear of the judge, because I know I just know he's, he's going to be nice, he's not going to do anything to me, it's not out of mercy, he's being kind. It's because he's a weakling or someone told him he can't or something like that. How would I know? Or I bullied him into saying, you can't do anything mean to me. But it's not mercy. I have to fear him if I want to call this mercy. It doesn't make sense otherwise. They must come together. It feels really embarrassing that I have to explain this on the podcast, Richard, but it needs to be explained in 2022. When a 14-year-old kid or a 15-year-old kid steals a car, gets access to a handgun, bullies a teacher at school, is abusive physically to other kids, and you think it's abusive to hold that child to account for their behavior, you are the abuser. You, in your fake human mercy, are the abuser. Because what that kid needs in order to find life in this life is fear. They don't know anything. They think it's fun to steal a car and to play with guns until one of their friends gets a bullet in the head. That's literally what a cop told me this week. They don't understand that if they don't get their act together and learn something in school, they will not find life. They will end up nowhere in life. They don't see the connection between learning something in the classroom, or submitting, rather, and being taught something in the classroom, and actually having a usable income 15 years from now. And if you don't teach them, which is impossible without instilling fear, you are the abuser. And it is your ignorance. It is your ignorance and your laziness and your lack of wisdom that is the cause of their stumbling. The link between mercy and fear, between God's mercy and his stern face in the book of Ecclesiastes, his wisdom and his stern face. The wise man beams when his face is stern because it is from this sternness that instruction flows. This is what is sorely missing in 2022. There is no government policy that's going to solve this problem. That is why in Scripture, 
God functions both as the patriarch, but also as a mother. If he just functions as a mother, we'll get sloppy. He can't just be the merciful womb. He also has to be the stern patriarch. It's very serious. We now in 2022, we just want to suck our thumb. We don't want any pressure. And here in the Gospel of Luke, we're talking about the Virgin Mary as the slave upon whom God looked in her humiliation. That is the one of whom we speak, and it is a reference to God's church. And with respect to this community, we are talking now about fear and mercy. In case you're wondering, what's at stake for our communities? For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. This is not a theological statement about sanctity. This is a mafia statement. He is the Mighty One. Listen to the word in Greek. It's beautiful. Dinatos. You know how you say dinamis when you're singing the Trisagion during the service? He is the dinatos. It sounds like a stick of dynamite because it is. He is the mighty one. And he has done great things. Meras. And his name. Hashem, the name. He has street cred. His name counts for something. His name is holy. So you better be afraid. That's the message. It's not about holiness in the philosophical sense. It's about fear, Richard. Fear. We begin with the Lord regarding, looking at, looking upon the humiliation of the handmaid. So the action that's taken is from the Lord. Now, she's already humiliated in this. We assume her humiliation, but the action is the Lord's. The great things continue to come from him, the mighty one, but mighty is also the able one or the powerful one, the one who is able. There's only one who's able. There's only one with the Vinamis who's able to do this. So the same one that looks upon the one who is humiliated is the one who does great things. And the word here, I believe you already said, megala, to the one who is humiliated. He looks upon the one who is humiliated and then does great things for the one who is humiliated. And holy is his name. It's interesting you brought this up, Father, because it kind of seems non sequitur. I thought we were talking about what he's doing with Mary. I thought we were talking about his power. What do you mean holy is his name? It means that this name which represents the Lord, when we're talking about this language of Scripture, it's the name that is the remembrance, that is the recalling, that is the making functional. When the Lord is called upon and made functional, that is what is holy, that mechanism by which the Lord is functioning. His name is holy because he is the one who performs these actions for the one who is humiliated. Again, we're looking forward to the end of the book. The mechanism is set up here in the first chapter. 
This is the word that the Holy Spirit has given to Mary to speak, but the word she's given to speak is not about her. It's to talk about how great the Lord is. So (laughs) this is like the press office of the country that everybody hates, sending off press releases to the ambassadors of all the other countries saying, make sure you say this to all your people about how great we are and how amazing we are. And the Holy Spirit is what's putting these words in the mouths of all these ambassadors because they're going to speak on behalf of that country and talk about how great they are. Here is Mary receiving the Holy Spirit so that she can talk greatly about the one who sent the Holy Spirit to her. But this mechanism by which the Lord is great, by which his name is holy, is by doing great things to the one who is humiliated. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. So he's the mafia don of the block. And his name will dominate the block not just for this generation, but for the generations to come, from generation to generation. And as long as you fear him, you fear his name, meaning you do what he says. And we know what he said, because Gabriel gave the instruction to Zacharias, and he didn't listen, and he gave it to Mary. And Mary brought it to Elizabeth. And John was expecting it because he heard it in the beginning. Because he was the prophet upon whom the Spirit rested. So we know what it is that the Lord, whose name is feared, expects of us from generation to generation. We know how We know the measuring stick of his judgment already in Luke. At least we know what Luke is talking about. Luke is talking about the content of Luke, and the content of Luke is talking about the content of the Bible. The Bible is self-referential. It talks about itself. It's circular. In case you're wondering. So his mercy... It goes from generation to generation. That's what we hear in Genesis. Thank God that God intervened in every generation in Genesis to make a baby, just like he intervened in every womb in the beginning of Luke to make a baby, or there would be no mercy. But his intervention didn't feel so great for Zacharias. It wasn't very comfortable. There's a link between fear and mercy. Come on, people. Do you see the connection? Or what is it that we say in the English language? No pain, no gain. But I don't want to use that phraseology because it's capitalistic. Because we're lovers of money, and now you're going to start talking about gain and figure out how you can use it to build the temple, which is not what Luke is talking about. Let me rephrase it for you. Let me correct the English language. No pain, no mercy. (laughs) That's a better way of saying it. Now, (laughs) 
<laughs> no one's going to like that phraseology, but that's scriptural. Yeah, you know, the people who are saying, oh, do you know, really, does the Bible really want us to be afraid? And, you know, my question is, well, mercy, like, does any, you know, who is mercy for? Well, of course, we know that mercy is for everyone. God's mercy is for everyone. God reigns on the righteous and on the wicked. So, you know, God's mercy is for everybody. It's like, well, let's follow the logic of this verse. To eleos of tu, tis fovumenis. His mercy is for those who fear him. Okay, so is fear important? Maybe not, but if you don't fear him, then is mercy for you? According to this verse, no. His mercy is for those who fear him. So if you don't fear him, then mercy's off the table. So it's not enough to be humiliated, but you also have to be afraid. You have to fear him. Because if you don't fear him, like I said in the beginning, mercy's non-functional. If he can't do anything bad for you, if you can get yourself out of the jam, then it's not mercy if you get out of the jam. It's because either he had to or you just did it yourself. And you mentioned before the prophet's father. I mean, in Hosea, you know, the whole battle is not whether you fear. It's do you fear the Lord or do you fear Baal? Baal, you can make a deal with. You know, if you give him this, then maybe he'll be easy on you on this. That's not mercy. That's bargaining. Mercy is when the judge holds your entire fate in his hand and says, all right, just don't go do it again. That's mercy. But if he says, well, since you gave me such a nice gift, then, you know, I'll let you off this time. That just means he's greedy. But this one has your entire fate in his hand. And you can't do anything to influence him. All you can do is fear that he might not have mercy on you. And from generation to generation means this is the rule from now on. So all generations are going to call her blessed because of what he did for her. But all the generations of those who fear him are going to receive mercy. But you have to fear him. Because if you don't, his mercy is non-functional. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.